On the night of August 8, 1976, two people were seen being dropped off on a dark, dirt road. The following morning, they were found murdered, execution style. What happened between those hours, and who were these two people? It's a mystery that would go on to hunt this small town more than 40 years later. Welcome back, everyone. As always, I'm your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti. And tonight, we're on Season 1, Episode 4. And we're going to start off the New Year right with a murder mystery. No, not that type. But this is a very weird case, and weird is what we do best here. These two people have never been identified, despite the fact we have pictures and all of their very nice jewelry was still on their bodies when they were found. Buckle up, because tonight we are on our way to Sumter, South Carolina, right after this. Hey there. It's your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti, and I just want to have a quick heart-to-heart with you now. You've probably been wanting to start your own podcast, but can't seem to get the ball rolling or you just don't know where to start. And trust me, I get it. There are a lot of options out there. It's almost overload. But today I'm going to tell you about the easiest way, and that is to download the Anchor app or visit anchor.fm to start your own podcast stress-free. No complicated software or membership fees. It's all free. And they'll even distribute it for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even start earning money right now with no minimum listenership. Download the Anchor app to get started today. Now, let's get back to the show. The time, August 9th, 1976. The place, Sumter, South Carolina. In the early hours of that Monday morning, six gunshots were heard by a man who lived near Locklear Road. He then heard a car speeding away on the gravel. Now, if you've ever lived on a dirt road, you know exactly how that sounded and how sound really travels. But during my research, I managed to find a YouTube video from a channel called The Wasted Century, where he is walking down this road, the same spot the bodies were found. If you want to see it, it is in the link in the show notes. But in that video, you can see just how secluded it is. What once was a pine forest is now mostly farmland. The lone dirt road would become synonymous that day with an unsolved mystery. At 6.20 a.m., a trucker named Martin Durant found the bodies and contacted Charles Graham, an employee at a nearby store. Graham, in turn, contacted the authorities. The crime scene was odd from the beginning. Now, you're probably wondering, Anthony... What is so weird about a crime scene? I mean, the people are dead, so of course it's weird. <laughs> but to start off, each victim had been shot three times, receiving one shot in the throat 
one in the chest, and one in the back. The weapon used was believed to be a 357 caliber revolver. The man was found laying on his back, his right leg bent at the knee, crossed in a figure four shape, with his left ankle on top of the right. His right arm was bent at the elbow and his left arm laid across his stomach. His head was cocked to the left and his eyes running towards the female victim next to him. The female was found lying on her back as well. Legs slightly parted with her feet just off the edge of the road. Her left arm was bent at the elbow. Her right arm was curled up with the fingers on her right hand splayed open just behind her head, which was facing left. Chin up, tilted, eyes fixed in a blank stare. Neither looked like they were from the area. The male was believed to be around the age of 18 to 27. He was six feet tall, had very striking features, Scars on his back that looked like he played a physical contact sport, was wearing no underwear, and hat and olive complexion. The female appeared to be younger than the male in age. Looking to be between 16 to 23, she had shoulder-length reddish-brown hair, hazel eyes, was 5 feet 5 inches tall, weighed approximately 100 pounds, had no underwear, no shaved legs, eyelashes that were abnormally long and also had an olive complexion. Who were they? And how did they end up dead on a dirt road in a small town in South Carolina? The police rushed to find the identity of this couple but had no leads. No identification had been found on either of the bodies, and items found on them would add more confusion to this already confusing case. After the autopsy, police theorized that the pair had been murdered execution style and that the assailant had driven them there to execute them and leave them deep in the woods. But at the time, there were high fences in place, which prevented them from doing so. But little did they know, finding the assailant would be the least of their problems. One clue would be the man's dental work. He had a unique type of root canal surgery that had been performed on him, which could be important for discovering who he was. He looked as if he had been midway through a complete dental restoration. Dental records would show that the young man had a very elaborate dental work with crowns and bridges. These specific procedures were not yet performed in the States at this time, so... He had to have been from another country. Also note that this would have been very expensive, so he was someone who had money or who had came from money. The clothing that was found on him were faded Levi blue jeans, a red t-shirt with Coors America Light beer on the front, and Camel Challenger GT Sebring 75 across the back. This shirt was very important because it most likely came from the 1975 Corps sponsored Sebring races in Florida, but investigators have no idea if he bought it there or got it secondhand. And just for a quick note, the shirt was only available from the event. He had a Boluva Actron yellow gold watch, serial number H918803 on his left hand. Boluva 
made the piece in 1968, but the company destroyed its records when downsizing shortly thereafter, so no one knows where the watches were distributed. A 14-karat gold ring with a gray lens star stone that had the initials JPF engraved on the inside, and last but not least, a pack of matches from Grant's truck stops. The truck stop only existed in Nebraska, Idaho, and New Mexico. The female was wearing cut-off blue jeans, a pink halter top that tied in the front, and an unbleached muslin blouse. She was also wearing a pair of stride-right wedge heel sandals with lavender and pink purple straps. The jewelry found on her would also lead nowhere. She had three silver rings that resembled American Indian or Mexican handmade jewelry. One piece was a band with red, white, and blue stones. Another had an oblong black stone. The third was a large, intricate feather scroll band with a jade inserted to the courage of the scroll. They appeared to have came from the Southwest. The autopsy would also reveal that the pair had eaten fruit or ice cream with the fruit not long before they died, so investigators were certain the two must have bought the food from a local eatery or store. Someone remembered seeing a couple matching the dead couple's description at a fruit stand that was located off the Florence Highway, but the person couldn't say whether the man and a woman were with someone else or if they were traveling alone. The dental records of the male were published in national dental journals, but no dentist came forward to claim the dental work. They put the dental records in the magazine upside down, which didn't really help. Apparently, this made the work harder to identify. But if you ask me, something so unique would still be recognizable by the person who did the work. The couple's remains would even stay at the funeral home in a see-through airtight casket in hopes that someone would come forward and identify them. People from all over the country called the funeral home to inquire about them including several parents of runaway teens, none were able to identify them. The bodies remained on display until they began to deteriorate. On August 4, 1977, one year and five days after the bodies were found, they were buried in Bethel United Methodist Church Cemetery in Oswego, South Carolina. Hundreds attended the funeral service. Law enforcement agencies raised several hundred dollars to pay the funeral home. Their graves have stone granite markers which read male unknown and female unknown. And you can visit them today. Now that you know what happened, let's figure out the who and the why. Who were these two people? Well, we have some theories. The initials JPF engraved inside the man's ring supported the theory that his name was Jock, or Jacques, or at least started with a J. A man named David Basson said he recognized the male victim. He said he worked for Coda Campgrounds. Basson claimed to have met the couple on two separate occasions. The first, they were coming back from Florida and said they liked South Carolina better. Besson said that he played pool with a man the second time, and the man told him that his name was Shock. He said that his father was a dentist in Canada, and he went to school to be a teacher against his parents' will, 
and this apparently made his parents disown him. I mean, on a side note, that really sounds like a Victorian novel, um, or at least a Nicholas Sparks novel. <laughs> Besson said that Jock even tried to sell him the ring. He said that Jock spoke with an accent and didn't appear to be from America. A KOA campground employee said that they believed the couple had been camping there. And this is where the information gets a little blurry. Different reports say it was up to six months and the others claim a few days. Now, if they were from another country and they were traveling on a travel visa, in 1976, the maximum amount of a travel visa time was six months. So do I believe they were there for six months? No, but I digress. A mechanic in York, Nebraska said he recognized one of them and worked on a van that had an either Washington or Oregon license plate. So if you're keeping track, they've been placed in the South, Pacific, Northwest, Southwest, and now Nebraska. These two apparently love to travel and hey, I can relate. When the couple were found, they were freshly showered, so they were not homeless. They had to have been traveling with a purpose. Why Sumter, South Carolina though? Was it just a stop for them or was something more sinister at play? Well, I'll get to those theories a little bit later. But on the day they were killed, there was a race going on in Florida. Maybe they were on their way there. On all accounts, the two seemed well off, so why was no one coming forward to identify them? In December 1976, a trucker by the name of George Lonnie Henry was stopped for drunk driving, and a gun was found in his truck. Now, this is America, and a lot of us have guns, so why is this being mentioned? Well, later the gun was proven to be the murder weapon, after it was testified by investigators. To make things even more suspicious, the serial number had been scratched off. So the police started to think Lonnie was the killer by all accounts. Waynesboro, North Carolina, where he was stopped, was about two hours from where the bodies were found. They started questioning him, and apparently he had a convenient answer for every question. He claims at the time of the murders, he was by his wife's side when she was in the hospital. Now, apparently this was good enough for the police because they believed him, without needing to see any sort of evidence. But me myself, I find it odd that they didn't even confirm it with the hospital. But he still had the murder weapon, so they started asking more about the gun. Lenny claims the gun was his brother's and was given to him years ago. Yes, you you heard that right. <laughs> he basically admitted to having the gun at the time of the murder. His brother was named Jim Henry, and Jim Henry was also in possession of a stolen gun. They realized in 1974 it had been stolen from Raleigh, North Carolina by a group of thieves. Lonnie says nobody had access to the gun, and I don't know how you're feeling about that, but guns just don't get up and take a road trip to kill two people, then come back home by themselves. Henry also had a history with law enforcement, had a drinking problem, and also killed a co-worker by accidentally backing over him, so not the best track record here. I haven't even gotten to the best part yet. Lonnie was not charged due to insufficient evidence. Also, am I the only one that finds it interesting that Lonnie was a truck driver and they were found by a truck driver? There's a lot going on with truck drivers in this 
case. I'm not really sure why. But who knows what Lonnie knew because he took the information to his grave six years after the murder at the age of 62, where he died from a heart attack. Now, things would get even stranger. The people that owned the campground the couple were last seen at would lose all of their records in a fire. The owners were said to keep extensive records of their guests, even going as far to take pictures of each guest. Now, why did the police not even visit them? Well, I have no idea, just like you. Let's get into some theories that circle around this case. Now, I need to warn you that there are a lot. I mean a whole lot. There's almost no way I could get through all of these in one episode, but I'll give you the top five popular ones. Theory one, they were involved in a drug smuggling and organized crime ring. The way they were killed was execution style and was similar to when the mafia orders hits on people. The race team on his shirt were heavily involved in a huge drug smuggling operation. They've had connections to the government and the CIA, so if he was wearing a shirt sporting one of those teams, it could be an indicator. The town at the time was also known for corruption. Many politicians and higher businessmen were accused of multiple murder for hire situations. A few months before this murder, there was even a police chief that was murdered by another officer. So it could explain why police fumbled this case so badly. Theory 2. This one is a little shorter. The couple were part of the Witness Protection Agency, which might coincide with the organized crime theory. It would make sense as to why nobody was able to come forward and claim them. Theory 3. The couple were fleeing Argentina and Chile during the Dirty Wars. People speculate that they might have been from these countries because of their olive complexion. And the fact that they weren't wearing underwear and the girl had not shaved her legs, which was a cultural norm in those countries during that time. However, that would negate the only witness we have that spoke to him who claims Jacques was from Canada. Now, you should also note that no one seemed to talk to the female. Um, so we don't really know if she was from Canada as well or from somewhere else, but you know, um, hopefully DNA will give a little insight on that. Theory 4. Their parents had them killed. One of the more obscure theories, Jock allegedly said that his parents disowned him and said his father was a very famous dentist. But that could have been a cover story. I mean, it does sound like something right out of a Lifetime movie. But... Who knows what type of family they were really from? Could that be the reason they weren't claimed? Theory 5. 
They were actually from Canada and just traveling across America, like they said. All of the valuables were still on their bodies, so it doesn't appear to have been a robbery. The mechanics said that they appeared to be in a van and this would support them traveling across country. One of the residents on the road they were found also mentioned a van that backed up and sped off that morning. Was it just a carjacking gone wrong? If so, why kill them execution style? And maybe only Jock spoke English, and this is why nobody spoke to the girl. If you've ever been to a foreign country where you don't speak the language or know a little of it, you know how quiet you can be around native speakers. There are so many things that go through my head when it comes to this case, so many possibilities, and I'd like to know your own theories. I told you we'd have a lot of twists and turns with this case, and this case also appeared on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, Season 7, Episode 22, if you're interested, but don't expect too much. Just a five-minute clip. Well, that's all I have for you guys tonight. And remember, you can always discuss any of the cases in our Facebook group. You can also find us on Instagram at Not Another Horror Podcast or on Twitter at NA Horror Podcast. You can also support the show by following the link in the show notes. Until next week, stay safe, stay sane, and stay away from lone, dark, dirt road. (laughs) 